Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. If these resources have been a blessing to you, we would be honored if you would consider making a donation to our church building fund. To learn more about this unique challenge ahead of us and to partner with us for a gospel legacy in Missoula, please visit achurchbuilding.com. That's achurchbuilding.com. Good morning, everyone. My name's Tyler. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, One other thing I just want to draw your attention to. uh, In the fall, there's new students, there's new people settling in Missoula, and if you are visiting Sovereign Hope and want to learn more, uh, join us September 29th uh, after service for just a short program we call Explore Sovereign Hope, and uh, there we will provide you the opportunity to meet some of the pastors, some of the staff, learn about who we are at Sovereign Hope, uh, what we want to do with this thing we call the gospel, um, and what it looks like for you to get more plugged in and involved. And so uh, if that's something you're interested in, please uh, put the 29th uh, on your uh, calendar, and we will see you there. So let's pray quickly here. Uh, Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have given to us your word. We thank you that you, um, even as what was just read, that you have asked us to love you with love incorruptible because you have loved us with love incorruptible. And so we come to you um, in your word, with your word, under your word, um, with nothing but your word because we want to hear from you today. We thank you that you have spoken, you have not left us on our own, but you have given to us uh, your word, your spirit, your church, each other, and many things to endure all that life will give to us. And so we pray that you are honored today as we look at this passage in Ephesians. We thank you for your goodness. We pray in your name. Amen. Do you have what it takes? Can you handle it? Will you make the cut? These are questions that all of us are used to experiencing At some level in our world, whether it's in relationships, whether it's in your career or in sports, we've all encountered places where our ability to endure and reach the end is equated with success. In some sort of competition and competing trials, the call is to make it, to carry on. And in the face of that, there's always seemingly two responses, succeed and get everything you've ever wanted, or fail and join the long list of those who couldn't make the cut. And that's because our world understands the need to endure. It understands that success is often just endurance in the right direction. And they demand it. If I invest in you, you better succeed for what I'm trusting you with. If I love you, you better satisfy me. If I hire you, you better get the job done. If I help you, You better not make me regret it. And these competing realities really stir in us two emotions, don't they? The first is that we could be prone to arrogance in the face of a challenge. Of course I can handle it. Who out of anybody would be able to handle it like me? The problem is, is if and when we fail in the face of that challenge, not only do we fail, but also so comes a challenge to our very identity. Because if I can't do this, then who am I? The other side is fearful apathy, where you probably think and know that you're right, I probably can't make it, so why risk it? Why risk failure and instead why not stay on the couch and play it safe? And in the workplace and in relationships, these are the defaults we wrestle with when it comes to understanding our ability to stand firm and to endure a challenge. And we are concluding the book of Ephesians this week and next week, and Paul is writing to a church just like ours, preparing the church for these kind of challenges and this type of endurance. The church that Paul is writing to in modern-day Turkey is a church that lived in the same dog-eat-dog world that we live in. They were not immune from all of these stresses that we face today. And what Paul is doing throughout this book is he is reminding them of certain things. He's reminding them of the beauty of the gospel, of what Jesus did and God desired before the foundations of the world, and he stretches all the way into eternity. Look at this salvation that Jesus has accomplished for you. And then he spends the the heart of the book saying, look at this beautiful life that God has given to the church. You are now God's new people. Look at what he's called you to. Look at this encouragement. Look at this camaraderie. Look at this joy. And then sprinkled throughout the book, he's calling us to what lies in our future, that there will one day be a glorious inheritance for us in heaven. We will be washed, we will be purified, we will be made whole. 
And so he's constantly reminding them of these things. But now as we're transitioning into, as Paul's transitioning into the end of his letter, he begins with this word, the first word you see in your text today, finally, finally. This is to say, in light of all that Paul has written, he's now beginning to ask that same question to us. Do you have what it takes? Will you be able to make the cut? But what's unique about Paul's conclusion and what Paul's going to teach us in this text is that we see on full display how wonderfully unique the gospel call to endure is in contrast to the calls of endurance that our world gives us. You see, the weight of endurance, when we talk about standing firm in the faith, which is what Paul is going to be talking about, is far weightier than any endurance in a relationship or in the workplace or in sports than we could ever imagine. The stakes are so much higher. Eternal life is at stake. And yet, the gospel comforts those who are weak and it humbles those who are arrogant. And in this concluding commission, Paul is calling a church to endure. Paul knows that a life that follows Jesus is a life that endures all things. And today he is equipping us to face those challenges. Challenges that could be as big and visible as a building fund and challenges that can be as internalized as lust or hatred or sins that wage war against our hearts. And so what we're going to do in this, next, this week and next week is we're going to take verses 10 through 24, which was just read for us, and we're going to split it into two parts. And this week we're going to look at the need to stand firm, and the next week we're going to look at the means to stand firm. And today what we're going to see is we're going to look at the first four verses, verses 10 through 13, and these are the things we're going to see as it comes to our need to stand firm. First, we're going to see that the strength to stand firm is God himself. Then we're going to see that the challenge to stand firm is the devil himself. And lastly, the call to stand firm is the gospel itself. The strength to stand is God, the challenge to standing is the devil, and the call to stand is the gospel itself. And so what I want to do is I want to read through our first four verses again, verses 10 through 13, and I want you to hear if you could actually see and hear those three points before we circle back and look at them more in depth. So this is starting in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, to stand firm. Now what follows... In verse 14, you can see it if you have your bulletins with you, is a popular passage of scripture often called the armor of God. I grew up in the church, and I always loved coming to church knowing that this is what we were going to do. If there's a VBS that focused on the armor of God, you learn that you're going to make weapons in church. And this is really exciting for a young boy growing up. And it's, it's, it's cool, it's fun. I had for a long time in my room a picture of me at VBS growing up with a sword because who else, where else do you get to go in life where they put you in armor and you get to call it Christianity? And so it was a cool thing to do. And I imagine that as uh, Rob read this text earlier, that those metaphors are what captured your imagination. And maybe they even excited you. There is this romantic allure of swords and shields and breastplates and helmets. And these metaphors are wildly helpful. This is God's word. It is divinely inspired. It is for our good. So much so that we want to stop and we want to spend our time next week really parsing these out and looking at what these mean and how they're practical to us today. But we need not lose sight of why Paul is using the metaphor of armor. Why is Paul using the analogy of a soldier? He's talked about some pretty great victories in the first parts of this book. But why now is the language that of war? Because Paul knows that a Christian life is a life of fighting. It's going to demand effort. It's going to at times be hard and demanding. In other words, before Paul gives us our armor, he needs to first convince us 
that there's a war. And that's what he's doing in this text. And this is important because for us in our Western world, we're relatively insulated from uh, the nearness of war. We see war on the news as something far away or in movies or in books for the purpose of history or of entertainment. We pay money to go to museums and look at suits of armor trapped behind glass. But in most cultures, if your friends want to do something fun and they say, hey, but before we go out, why don't you put this armor on? You start asking questions. (laughs) When the discussion turns to armor for the majority of human history, you know something serious is coming. War. Something is different. And in these verses, Paul is teaching us about the nature of these wars by emphasizing those three truths, of which we see the first one here today. The strength to stand firm in this war is God himself. Look at verses 10 through 11. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Now, as I sat down to do work on this text this week, I read verse 10, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, and I fell in love with it. And then I fell out of love with it. And then I fell back in love with it again. And so I'm going to talk to you a little bit about this adolescent relationship I had with verse 10 this week. Because what happened first is I fell in love with it because I want so deeply this strength. It just, it it grabbed my soul. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Isn't that a wonderful truth? Don't you just want to like wrap yourself in that blanket and just cuddle up? And we've all had times where the need to be warmed and welcomed by such a strength is, is really near to us. And this past week is one of those. When I think about all the things that God has going in my life, it, it's weighty. There's me, my son's going off to school in first grade, the first time fully out of the house, and it's got a weird effect on parents that you, they don't teach you that when you have kids. Um, and then uh, we're, this building fund and all the numbers that need to go with that. And then on top of that, Uh, There's one segment of plumbing in my house that's under concrete from the original house in the 70s, and it is completely corroded. There's no pipes anymore. And all I wanted this week is I just wanted this text to just be my pacifier. Just be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. That God, God can handle this. Whatever it is, God can handle it. I'm sure you've been in places like that too, where all you want is that breath of fresh air that reminds you that things are going to be okay, that you can make it. And I read this text and I savored it. And then I hated it. (laughs) Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. You see, it took me a while to really look and see what this verse is saying. This is where I quickly fell out of love. I wanted to be strong in the Lord, but I wanted it to look like the strength of my might. I want to be strong in the Lord, and I want it to look like sins fleeing before me. I want it to look like pipes miraculously reforming after years of Drano. I want it to look like obedient children and a wife that meets every need. I want it to look like massive checks being written to where we, like Moses in Exodus, have to turn away people giving money from the church because we have everything we need. That's not what Paul is saying here, is it? He's calling the church to be strengthened in the Lord by, in, and through his strong might. Which means this. That God's strength, the very strength that you and I so desperately want, doesn't always look like the strength we think we want. The strength we need looks different than the strength we imagine. This has been true throughout the gospel. Remember, the kingdom of God looks more like a mustard seed than a mountain. God's redemptive program looks like a cross and not a military campaign. It's humbling to want to treasure Ephesians 6 verse 10. Because how many times in our life do we say, man, I'd be able to endure this trial if it was just easier. If God would fix this, then it'd be easy to love him. If I all of a sudden was stronger, then this would be nothing. 
And we think this way because this is how the world conditions us to think. It tells us that if you're going to make it, if you're going to endure, you better figure it out. You better find that strength. You better watch those Disney movies till you're blue in the face. Find your inner princess and rise against it. (laughs) But that's not the gospel. We can't do it on our own. We cannot earn our salvation on our own. And we cannot endure in our salvation on our own. This is what Paul said when he was writing to another church in Galatia, where he says this in Galatians chapter 1, verses 2 through 3. Or excuse me, Galatians 3, verses 2 through 3. Let me ask you only this. He's like, I have one question for you, church. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by your flesh? Paul's using lots of words here, but what he's basically saying is this. He says, if you understand, and you confess, because this is where Christianity starts, that we can't do it, but Jesus can. If you confess that you are saved by the Spirit in Jesus Christ, then why are you now thinking that you will endure apart from that? If Jesus has done all of that to make you alive, do you not think he's going to help you live it? In other words, it's almost like having a father who's so generous and so loving that he's willing to buy you a house, but you don't trust him to buy you a cup of coffee. That's so easily what we do in our faith. We recognize Jesus and Jesus alone needs to save us. But when it comes to living, it's my strength. It's my power. You see, in this text, there is comfort, which we'll look at to those who are weak. But there is first and foremost a challenge to those who are strong. I want you to think about your current stance in the world, in your walk with God, are you one who feels right now that the call to stand firm is pretty unneeded? Things are going swimmingly. Life seems to be going well. The pieces are falling where you want them to fall. Well, take a sober moment here and reflect on the source of your strength. What is it that you point to that says, this is the reason why I'm strong? Because as we're going to see as this text unfolds, is that if our strength is in anything but God himself, our castle of sand will someday come crashing down. You see, I so badly want God's strength in my life to look like the picture of my strength. But ultimately, that's not trusting in God. That's trusting in myself. That's saying, this is what deliverance looks like, God. Would you please provide that? But God's calling us to trust in him, in his might. And that really should challenge us. And we see this in the Old Testament with a guy named King Uzziah. And in this part, Judah and Israel had split. And Judah is the southern kingdom. And in it, generally, kings are terrible. But Uzziah was a good king. He followed God's law. He built up parts of the kingdom that were broken. He led religious reform. He was one that God generally smiled upon. But look at what happens in 2 Chronicles 26, verses 15 through 16. Ultimately, Uzziah looked at the good things which God provided him, and his trust was moved from God. Look at what he says in verse 15. In Jerusalem, he, that's Uzziah, made machines invented by skillful men to be on the towers and the corners to shoot arrows and great stones. In other words, not only is he a good king, but he's an inventive king with great military might. And his fame spread far, for he was marvelously helped till he was strong. But when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction." Is that a condemning message? He was marvelously helped till he was strong. How quickly do we trust in our strength instead of God's strength? You see, the world tells us to fear weakness. At all costs, do not be weak. But God is calling us to fear false strength. And I've seen it happen so many times in campus ministry and with the church 
People come to God, they come to the church because they have a deficiency, they have a weakness. And they sit here, they sit alongside of us until that weakness, until that wound, until that deficiency is made well. And then they feel strong. And then they leave. I don't need God anymore. I don't need God's word. I don't need God's church. I've been healed. I've been fixed. I can make it on my own. But that's not strength. If you're in here today and you think that coming to church is just one sidestep, one hospital visit on your way to your own dreams, then you're missing the point. God is to be relied on continually throughout our life. To think otherwise is a pride that leads to destruction. Where is your strength to you who seem to be strong? To those on the opposite end of the spectrum, to those who look out and they see not smooth sailing, but instead they see storms and they see opposition and see defeat at every corner. Look at what God is holding out to you in Ephesians 6, verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Here's a wonderful truth that sometimes we get so caught up in this metaphor that we miss it. God wants you to have his armor, not yours, his That's a really wonderful thing. This is where we can begin to fall back in love with this text. This is where we can begin to see God's goodness again. And there's a wonderful scene in 1 Samuel 17 where David the shepherd boy goes and checks on his brothers who are at war and they're all hiding in their tents because they're scared of Goliath, right? We know this story. And David says, hey, this isn't right. God's on your side. And so he's about to go out, the shepherd boy, to fight Goliath and he goes into King Saul's tent and King Saul says, here, take my armor, David. He puts it on David, and David's like, I can't fight in this. I can't move in this. I'm not a warrior by your standards. I don't know what it's like to move in this kind of armor. And so what David does is he goes out to battle, robed in nothing but his trust in God, and he conquers. You see, you need to realize that this world is trying to sell you armor every day. It's trying to sell you something that says, if you have this, you will be safe. If you have this, you will be happy. If you have this, you will stand firm. And some of us will sell everything to get it. And it will take our souls. And some of us will realize in crushing weight that we don't have what it takes to buy the world's goods. And we will wallow in self-pity. But here Paul offers the very armor of God given by grace. This is what you need. Though it is a beautiful metaphor, there is nothing illustrious about this strength. It is as real as God himself. He is giving it to you that you may endure whatever is to come, whatever the battle which will be defined. God is offering you armor. He is offering you the armor of God. It is that we might sing With the old hymn, rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. How good a God is our God that he gives himself to his people like this? If you survey world religions, for the most part, if you need help from your God, you have to pander to his pettiness. You have to do some extreme show of ardent worship to him so that maybe that God would be kind enough to help you. But here is the true God, the only God of Scripture, who says, I have what you need. If you've come through Jesus, all of it is at your disposal. All of it is here, the very power of God himself. You see, Paul wants you to see this supernatural help that has been availed to you. He's done this all throughout the book of Ephesians, and now it's coming to this head. He wants you to see that the whole force of God is behind you. But he also wants you to see that this is because there's a supernatural enemy. And we see this as Paul continues in verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So this is where we see our second point. The challenge to stand firm is the devil himself. The challenge to stand firm is the devil himself. Paul opens up by immediately saying that our war, our battle, our call to endure is not against flesh and blood. That should terrify us, shouldn't it? 
We know, we've seen, we've experienced the fight, the trial, the challenge of other people. We've experienced on a worldly level, we are coming out of the bloodiest century of human history. We know the horrors of flesh and blood. And even more than that, we're beginning to learn and beginning to know how controlling and how powerful these non-spiritual forces are over our life. Since the dawn of the smartphone uh, over a decade ago or whenever it was that it came up, neuropsychologists and neuroscientists have been teaming up with app developers and marketing directors to literally hijack your brain. This unique combination of flesh and blood has discovered something called RPE, Reward Prediction Error Encoding. In other words, they know what triggers your brain to release the chemical dopamine, which makes you happy and makes you want more of what is happy. They've looked at the pathways that are inside of your mind and your brain and your physiology and through the timing of your notifications, through the noises that your phone makes, through the colors of the apps and the animations on your screen, they are literally affecting the physiology of your brain. They are conditioning you for something. In other words, the reason why Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram is all free is because marketers know that they can literally control your desires and your consumption patterns from the box that sits in your pocket. There's this famous scene in Jaws where one of the sailors is chumming the water looking for sharks, and uh, he looks back and he sees the massive shark Jaws come up and eat some of the chum. And he's staggered by how big it is. And so all he does is he walks backwards, eyes wide open, into the cab of the boat. He turns to the captain. He just says the famous line, you're going to need a bigger boat. When Paul here is telling us that our battle is not against flesh and blood, he's saying, you're going to need a bigger boat. You can't browse Instagram without having a lust for that new product or new outfit, but you think you could say no to sinful desires. You can't make it through church without checking your fantasy football alerts, and you think you could stare down the devil. Your battle, Paul says, is not against flesh and blood. It is against the devil himself, and you're going to need more than mere might to conquer it. Paul doesn't give a background story to this villain. He just mentions him, the devil. And what he's assuming here is that there is a personal devil, and he is against you. The devil isn't a nickname for anything that's evil in this world. It's not just a caricature of everything that's gone wrong. The devil is a real being. The Bible tells us he was an angel created by God who one day led a rebellion in heaven Against God and with him came many other angels into what is the world's most ill-fated rebellion. And I say ill-fated because while Satan is much more powerful than us, he's not more powerful than God. In fact, he could do nothing apart from God's divine allowance. And we see that in the book of Job, where Satan comes to God and God says, you may test Job, but there's a limit into what you can do against him. And it's not because Satan is just a fair sport that he listens to these rules. Satan's not interested in following rules. The reason why Satan doesn't overstep those rules is because he cannot. God is infinitely more powerful than Satan. And one day with a word, God will dispatch Satan and all of his minions forever. Yet, as ill-fated as it is, it is still rebellion. God has granted Satan a level of authority and influence in this world words that Paul has used twice in this text to talk about rulers and authorities that aren't just physical, but spiritual forces in this world. And he seeks to work his woe wherever he can. And this devil, this real being, schemes against you. Works his wiles, if you have a King James Bible, against you. The Apostle Peter talks about it this way in 1 Peter 5, verse 8. 
Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Do you understand the weight of what Paul is talking about here? Is the boat getting bigger in your mind? Because Paul actually wants to do more than just help you understand what lies against you. He's actually trying to get you to feel what is against you. And see, when you're reading your Bible, one of the most important things you could do to help your Bible reading habits is just to look for repeated words and say, why, why is this author repeating this word at the rate he is? And so I want you to notice the repeated words we see in verses 11 through 12. Listen here. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces in the heavenly places. Did you hear it? Did you feel it? Do you feel surrounded? Six times Paul uses the word against. Not against flesh and blood, though they're certainly against you, but against the schemes of the devil, against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers, and against the spiritual forces in the heavenly places. We better have a multifaceted approach, ought we not? These things are not just existing. They are existing and they are against us upon every front. So I have a sober question for you to consider. When you think about all the challenges that lie between here and your grave, do you realize that the hardest battle you will ever fight is the battle to stand firm in your faith against the vices of Satan? That there are no calls more weightier in Scripture to the believer than that call. For just as app developers know they don't need to get you into the mall or steal your wallet so long as they control your heart. So Satan doesn't have to appear as a caricature on your shoulder or in a Ouija board to exercise meaningful control over your heart. And his desire is to sell you armor which leads you away from God. The battle you face Every day is a battle for your soul. Paul's already warned us about this back in Ephesians chapter 4. He said, do not make an allowance, do not give an opportunity to this devil. Now, as powerful as the devil is, he's no match for God. Does this text make us overly fearful and obsessive about where the devil is and what he's doing? Do we start looking for Satan and all these things and becoming more panicked about it? No, that's not necessarily what the Bible wants us to do, because it also reminds us of something in 1 John 4, verse 4, where the Apostle John says this, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in the world is greater than he who is in the world. Before that, John's talking about these same senses of authorities, and there's these spiritual authorities who are in the world, and greater is he who is in you than those authorities who are in the world. So looking at this, it doesn't make us obsessive. It doesn't make us weird. We're not lifting up carpets and peeking behind bushes trying to find Satan. But what it does do is it does open our eyes to the need to stand firm. We need help against this kind of enemy. There's much debate in our American society today, especially as election season comes around, regarding the Second Amendment, the right to bear arms. The Second Amendment was created so that civilians might have the right to a militia to protect themselves against the overreaches or offenses or violence of the state. And there are millions of dollars and countless hours spent by some to ensure such a capacity to resist if the need should arise. Do you have such a healthy fear when it comes to resisting the devil? Do you have such a healthy fear of Satan and his schemes so that your mind thinks of much of this world in terms of how am I equipped to resist? 
Because we're in need of such a perspective. Because Paul's point is, is that our only hope in this world is a Jesus greater than anything we can encounter. Our Satan wages war against us, so we ought not be arrogant. But Jesus makes a way forward, and so we ought not despair. There's this tension that Paul wants us to have of reality of both what stands against and reality of what also stands behind us. Look with me at Ephesians 6, verse 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. If you notice in here, if we're looking for repeated words, that whole word is in there every time. Can't do it in part. You need all of this. You need all of God for all of life. Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Here's our last point this morning. The call to stand firm is the gospel itself. The call to stand firm is the gospel itself. Maybe you've made it this far into the sermon and you're like, why are we talking about this? What does this have to do with me? Get to the practical part where we get to look at swords and shields and we get to do something. We actually get to do something practical. But don't rush over verse 13. In this entire concluding section, do not overlook the weight of verse 13. Yes, we have seen that God is all sufficient to endure us in the time of trouble. Yes, we've seen that Satan and all of his lackeys wage war continually against your soul. But do you see the weight of verse 13 and why verse 13 is so important when it comes to how believers should understand this life? The reason why God is offering himself to you, the reason why Jesus came and died for your sins, the why which drives every desire in our lives is hidden inside of verse 13. Look at it again. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day in having done all to stand firm. Here's the tough truth of this text you might be all about the glory of God. You might be all about going to church. You might sing songs and attend Bible studies. You might go to community group. You might profess faith in Jesus. You might write the million-dollar check that we need for the building fund. You might go on a missions trip. You might accomplish wonderful things in this city for the fame of God's name. But if you fail to stand firm, you have done nothing. That when all is said and done, to have stood firm. Look at what Jesus himself says in Mark chapter 13, verse 13. And you, speaking to his disciples, will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Paul's words again, 2 Timothy chapter 2. Verses 11 in the first part of 12. This saying is trustworthy. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign. James, the brother of Jesus, says this, James 1 verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, and not before, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. The Apostle John in Revelation chapter 4, looking at a vision into the last things, look at what he says in chapter 4, verse, or 14, excuse me, 14, verse 12. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Do you hear the weight of Scripture? Do you hear how important it is to understand this war without standing firm, without passing this test, without endurance? There is no salvation. You might think the whispers of sin and the pleasures of this world are nothing inside of the whole context of grace. But if they continue 
despite how much you claim grace, if they continue to erode the faith upon which you stand, you play cheaply with salvation itself. You take lightly the very means of grace that God has given to us in Scripture. Look with me at Hebrews 10, 35 through 39. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised for yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Probably not a more fearful verse in scripture, is there? that God might not take pleasure in you. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Now, either the author of Hebrews is bipolar or there's something bigger at stake here. He starts out and he says, you have need for endurance. He says, oh, you're going to make it. Which is it? Do we need to endure or will we make it? Can you imagine the anxiety you would have if someone just told that to you? Hey, it's going to be really hard. You're probably going to die, but you might make it too. This is where we need Jesus. This is where Jesus holds the tension between those who have a great need and those who have a great confidence. Dear believer... You must stand firm. And dear believer, if you are in Jesus, you will stand firm. Look at what Jesus himself says in John chapter 10, verses 27 through 29. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hands. This is the beauty of the gospel. This is why the call to endure in Scripture is so much greater than the call to endure in any other area of life. You see, the gospel, put it from your mind that the gospel is a call to an easy life. That is false armor which will destroy you. But the gospel is this. So long as you cling to Jesus as the one who did everything required to save sinners and restore us to God, so long as that is your hope and you cling to him, though Satan may scratch and pull, Jesus will hold you fast. Jesus is your savior And when he is, you will take up this call to put on whatever he wants you to put on, regardless of the cost, and you will stand firm because Jesus will endure you. Now, this sounds really passive, doesn't it? It sounds like a a, a cheat code. It's like, I sit back and trust Jesus, and that's it. But it's not easy. It's not easy to cling to Jesus when the world offers so many other ways out. We must see him differently and realize the weight of trusting in that kind of object. In 1814, an American poet named Francis Scott Key was aboard a British ship as a fleet of uh, British boats sailed up the Chesapeake Bay to attack and bombard the American militia held up in Fort McHenry. He knew that the forces that were in Fort McHenry stood no challenge not only against the men aboard the British ships, but against the firepower that the British Navy presented. And he could do nothing but watch as the British bombarded, rocketed, and cannoned that little Fort McHenry from dusk till dawn. But that morning, as countless hours of cannon smoke cleared, In the dawn's early light, he saw the flag. The flag that stood over Fort McHenry, 
that didn't symbolize that the war had been won, but symbolized that whatever was inside of Fort McHenry had stood firm. In that moment, he began to pen down what is now the star-spangled banner, which describes this symbol of endurance when it says it gave proof through the night that the flag was still there. And reflecting on this evening, some years later, Scott says this, I saw the flag of my country waving over a city, the strength and pride of my native state, a city devoted to plunder and desolation by its assailants. I witnessed the preparations for its assaults. I saw the array of its enemies as they advanced to the attack. I heard the sounds of battle, and the noise of conflict fell upon my listening ears and told me that the free, brave and the free had met the invaders. Then did I remember that there were gathered around that banner, among its defenders, men who had heard and answered the call of their country. From these mountainsides, from this beautiful valley, and from this fair city of my native country, And though I walked upon a deck surrounded by a hostile fleet, detained as a prisoner, yet was my step firm and my heart strong as these recollections came upon me. Through the clouds of war, the stars of that banner still shone in my view, and I saw the discomfited hosts of its assailants driven back to their ships. Then, in that hour of deliverance and joyful triumph, my heart spoke a question. Does not such a country and such defenders of their country deserve a song? And with it came an inspiration not to be resisted. You see, that firm standing flag of American lore was an inspiration for an entire nation. But at the end of the day, the flag was just a flag. It did nothing buffeted by the winds, unable to do anything on its own. But this is where we must see Jesus. When you think of Christianity and you see churches with crosses the size of small elephants next to them, it's on our necklaces and it's on our websites, is he just a symbol that by your bootstraps you might make it through the night? Because that's not the kind of savior Jesus is. Jesus is not a symbol of God's love. He is the very means of it. Jesus is not a symbol of strength. He is the very substance of it. Do you understand that when Jesus was raised on a cross, he took the worst this world had to offer. He took the full scorn of Satan, the sins of men, the pain of humanity, the very rejection of God himself. But in the dawning of that third day, he gave proof through the night. You see, this world will throw everything at you to convince you of strengths and securities apart from Jesus. But regardless of where you are with the gospel, whether this is the first time or the hundredth time of hearing it, I invite you to come and believe and to come and repent because here we see that Jesus proves everything he provides What is there to fear which Jesus has not himself endured victoriously? This is the gospel. You fear death? Jesus faced it. You feared the rejection of God? Jesus took it for you. You feared the scorn of men? Jesus had it. You face a full frontal assault from Satan and Jesus conquered it. Whatever it is that is out there that is fearful to you, look to this Jesus. Look to what he has offered and stand firm. If death was nothing to him, then don't you think that this same firm-footed Jesus would endure you even if it draws you to the doorway of death itself? Church, the armor which is to follow is nothing if we do not see Jesus. For the very things that are at the root of the metaphor, faith, righteousness, God's word, the gospel itself, are nothing apart from this enduring Savior. This is the wonderful news of the gospel. Let me break it to you now. You don't have what it takes. But Jesus does. And he's given it to you. 
And in those moments where you feel all is lost to sin and Satan, then gaze upon the means of our faith. Gaze as Keated on this symbol, which is far more than that of inspiration. And look to him and say in your heart with him that greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. And stand a little more. Endure a little longer. You see, in this room are people on both sides of the spectrum, myself included, who need to repent. We need to repent of being arrogant, thinking that we can endure on our own apart from Jesus. For it is a sin, and you are not God. But then there are people in here who need to repent, for they feel that Jesus is not strong enough to help them endure. Though that is less arrogant, it is just as sinful and selfish in its own way. And you need to repent. So won't you look at this war and be resolved before we ever get to the armor that we have a need far greater than we can imagine and a Jesus far greater than we've ever dreamed. When all seems lost, stand firm. When the nations rage, endure. In closing, I want to share words from a Martin Luther hymn, one we sang just this last week. Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. You ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. The Lord of hosts his name, from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. Church, Jesus will win the battle. But will you win by standing firm inside of his work, even if it costs you everything? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, the war which is fought today is a war for our minds. A war that challenges complacency and the seeds sown by the devil and calls us to a gospel war cry. A cry that if we are not careful, we will make it about our might and about our ability and about our Bible memory and about our prayer life and about our church. But Lord, protect us. May we be strong in the Lord and in the power of your might. Lord Jesus, may we be a church when all is said and done that stands firm, that endures the test and receives the crown of life. We pray all of this in your name. Amen.